The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report is out now. Search ey.com slash ie slash CEO and discover the key topics on the minds of Ireland's leading CEOs. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Last year, Irish family-owned fuel group Maxall was 100 years old, but its celebrations had to be cut short due to the outbreak of COVID and the Irish economy being in lockdown. Nonetheless, the company has pressed ahead with a major revamp of its forecourt network. This has included a large investment in its retail shops to include a focus on freshly brewed coffee and an extensive food-on-the-go offering. Maxall is also gearing up to drive change at the pumps, switching from fossil fuels to electric vehicle chargers to help meet climate change targets set by the government. But this will come at a big cost to the company and possibly the state, as you'll hear later. Last week, I travelled to Maxall's flagship outlet in Bray to meet with Chief Executive Brian Donaldson and with family shareholder Noel McMullen, whose grandfather was a co-founder of the group a century ago. We met outside and I began by asking Brian to describe the forecourt operation to me in detail. Okay, well, this is one of the first sites that we started development work on just in advance of COVID. So obviously the works had to stop and then they started to reopen again, really around about June last year. So what we're looking at here is a very large forecourt. You're looking at our new modern dispensers here, which is now selling our premium fuel range. And this is really extending choice to those customers who want to buy premium fuels where we're carbon offsetting the emissions from their tailpipe. So this is giving people more choice. It also falls into our role in terms of sustainability and how we're doing our bit for the environment. But if I can just take you across the forecourt, you can see there's plenty of space here for up to eight cars to fill at any one time. You're looking across from the forecourt into our car washing facilities, which are so important today. And even when mobility moves to electric vehicles, people will still need to wash their cars. So it's very, very important that we continue to invest in providing the right quality of car wash equipment. It has to be very reliable and it has to give a really good performance in terms of how it cleans your car. So if I can now just turn you to your left and you're looking in towards our convenience store. And really the future of forecourt retailing is all about the convenience and the services and products that we provide to our customers. And that constantly evolves. And what we did when we reopened this site just towards the end of August last year is we introduced our new Maxwell Deli. This is our new range of freshly produced, freshly prepared products. 60% of all of our products for our deli and for our our food service are homegrown in Ireland. It's very important being a family-owned, family-run business that we support the domestic economy. And that's one of the things we've always tried to do over our 101-year history. So if I can take you through the store, like you can see a very strong deli offering that starts early in the morning at half past six and works right through to well into the afternoon. It's a very strong footfall driver in terms of a breakfast, lunchtime and a mid-afternoon offer. We also have our Mexican style burritos for those people who are looking for something to take away. It's quite a substantial meal. Again, very good quality, locally sourced products. And that caters probably from lunchtime right into the early evening trade. If I then can just take you into our convenience store under the Maxwell brand. And in this, you will see Maxwell branded milk. It's our own private label range. Again, it all comes from Irish farms in terms of that product, doing our bit again for the local economy. You'll also see Maxwell water. You'll also see other Maxwell branded products, which is really extending our brand from being traditionally on the forecourt to in-store 
Our brand is now sitting in people's fridges, it's in people's shopping baskets, it's sitting in their larders. That's why we're trying to extend our business. Obviously, you'll see a full range of convenience. Anyone can come here and do a full basket shop. Very well priced, very competitive, very nicely set out from the point of view in terms of it's very modern, it's very clean lines, it's quite contemporary. It's what we would say is our play in terms of almost an Avoca style environment where people want to come. We're very welcoming because the people who run our sites are local people from the area, employing local people to serve the local community. And that's what we are. Our positioning line says it all sure. at the heart of it. So I'll also show you just in the corner is our full off license, which is very, very important, particularly for a community store. This is about making sure if you're coming in to get something from our deli for the evening or even one of our ready-made meals to take home to heat in the oven, you can get your bottle of wine or if you want spirits or if you want your beer and your choice of beers, it's all there. But the thing about this store, it's the quality of service. It's the local people who are running the store to serve the local sure. community. So what's the mix between, let's say, your four-court sales, your traditional four-court sales at the pumps and what you're wearing in store? That's been changing. And, and that's one of the things that we, we have to do as a business. You know, we're very much aware that mobility is going to change. It's being driven by government legislation, climate action plan, and certainly internal combustion engine vehicles are going to stop being made available probably on our roads from about 2030 in terms of new sales. That's not saying there'll be a lot of other ICEs still on the road running. You know, at the moment, the fleet is about 2.8 million in Ireland. So there's still going to be quite a big business there. So what we've been doing at this moment in time our income was probably 60-40 in favour of the forecourt in terms of liquid fuels. That's now moved to 50-50. And the aim is to get that 60% from non-fuel sales coming from our food service, from our convenience, from our alcohol, and the other plans that we have in terms to make our sites real destinations and fit for purpose for the future. Brian, what impact did COVID have on this particular service station? Let's say when the lockdown came in first in March 2020, what happened to sales? Look, it's been a very challenging time for everybody, but the first thing I have to congratulate is the people, the frontline people within our business who got up every day when certainly many, many people worked remotely. They weren't serving the public, the frontline workers. We're very proud of all of our licensees, all of our independent retailers, and indeed all of the staff. But business was very dramatically hit. It's no surprise with those very tight restrictions Fuel volumes in certain locations dropped by up to 70%. So that was a major change in terms of why people visited our stores. But on the positive, and there always is a positive in these situations of crisis, our stores became local community stores. People changed their behaviors. They weren't happy to go to the big box retailers. They wanted to come to stores where they felt safe, where we had put in the right protections, the sanitization stations, all of the prospect screening. We invested in technology so we could do the contactless payments because people didn't really want to touch you know, keypads or pin pads. And really our stores became hubs for traditional groceries and shopping. You would have seen a decline in deli and coffee for obvious reasons. Um, but we've seen a massive uplift in terms of basket shopping. Tobacco also grew, alcohol grew, and everyday essentials changed. So people's habits changed. And, and, and that was a forced change because of the restrictions. So our stores became more community. And one of the things we're seeing today, Kieran, is that the solidarity that's been built between our local retailers and their local communities has never been as strong. 
And that's, that's a positive that's come out, certainly out of COVID, if there is a positive to come out of it. No, Mullen, you're one of the family owners of this business and your grandfather was one of the founders of the company. Just tell us a little bit about how the forecourt operation has evolved over that time. When I came into the business, as I said, a lot of sites were small, in front of a pub, one pump, two pumps maybe, in front of a house, one pump or two pumps. And the industry has enormously changed in efficiency over the 40 years I've been in the firm. I'm pretty certain that nearly all of our deliveries now, the truck goes to a customer and empties itself there. One customer goes back, delivers 35,000 litres, whatever it might be. Um, whereas in the, when I joined the firm, you could be dropping off 200 gallons as it was in, that, in those days, that's say 1,000 litres, and unhosing and hosing up. So it was very expensive in those days. So there have been enormous changes in the distribution system. You see the oil trucks now are very big, the biggest and heaviest vehicles on the road, amongst the biggest and heaviest on the road. So that's been a very big change. And then when you compare this site we're on now or most of the mainline sites of ours and everybody else's, they're very different from the old days of the curbside pumps. Um, so there have been enormous changes. And it's if you take the the taxes out of the price on that pump there. The actual petrol, plus the VAT on the price of the petrol or diesel, is about 50 cent. The other uh, Euro, Euro, yeah, 100 cent, is all excise duty and various other government taxes that we have to pay. And it's amazing, you know, if you compare that with the litre of milk in on the shore there, on the store there, comes from a cow out on the field there kind of thing or the bottle of water that comes from Tipperary or wherever it just is amazing the efficiencies that have been built into this industry people complain about the oil price of oil and everything else but it's largely the taxes on the oil um, so it's not a fair comparison. Noel there are a lot of people on the environmental side of the arguments um, who are keen you know, very involved in climate change and keen to save the planet. And they would look at your family and say, great that Maxol has lasted for 100 years, but effectively for 100 years, you and other uh, oil companies have been polluting the atmosphere. Yes, but the, there have been enormous improvements in the pollution or reductions in the pollution aspects of, of the oil from the oil company's point of view. And the cars from the car manufacturer's point of view have been made much more... Um, clean, you know, catalytic converters, etc. And uh, any car uh, manufacturer that I've spoken to say that that would continue into the future. You know, there, there are more improvements that can be made um, over the years. But, um, okay, we've had a number of fuel revolutions in the history of the world. It was wood in the beginning, then it was coal, and then Winston Churchill changed the British Navy in World War I to oil and oil has lasted 100 years so far, and there's going to be another one. And the debate is, what's it going to be? At the moment, we're all moving into electricity, but electricity has to be made somewhere or other. You can't rely on the wind every day. There's no wind on this forecourt at the moment. Um, so, and there's going to be much bigger linkages internationally, because if the wind's not blowing here, it'll be blowing in England or France or Germany or somewhere. So all the networks will, will 
will get more and more um, linked up to make electricity a more reliable um, source of energy. But um, there are other possibilities, one of them being hydrogen. Hydrogen is the commonest element on the Earth's surface. Um, there already are CIE, um, CIE, isn't it? Yeah, CIE, but Dublin bus, buses running on hydrogen out to uh, um, the north side of Dublin. Um, so, you know, it's a viable fuel. I drove um, uh, a hydrogen car in California about 20 odd years ago. Brian and I both drove a hydrogen car, how long ago? Three years ago in Norway. And we drove into a hydrogen petrol station, a hydrogen station, and refueled the car. Um, so the technology exists, but you know whether it'll ever become commercial is is a debate. I mean, when you got your first mobile phone, it cost about a thousand quid, and it was the size of a cavity block. And uh, look what it is now. You can get a fingernail for a phone nowadays uh, at a price of about thirty euros. So. It won't happen in my lifetime, I'm 76, but um, hydrogen is a possibility, particularly for heavy trucks, aircraft maybe. Brian, uh, sticking on a similar theme, there are no electric vehicle chargers on this site, which is a bit of a surprise. Yeah, look, and to be quite honest, we, we have a team working on our EV strategy. And yeah, look, electricity is coming. <laughs> It's just at what point it becomes affordable. And the reason why we don't have uh, a bank of EV rapid chargers here, Kieran, is quite simply that we can't get sufficient capacity from the grid at this particular location. Uh, and I think it's very important that consumers understand that there's going to be a transition, a transition from traditional liquid fuels, which we've been doing and serving our customers well, for 101 years. And we realize that we, in the future, are probably going to sell a mosaic of energies from this particular forecourt. That will also continue to be biofuels, traditional liquid fuels, probably with higher percentages of bioelement coming through there, probably even advanced fuels, such as hydrogen at a certain point of time. We see hydrogen being commercially viable, probably much more for HGV heavy road commercial fleet fleet, to be honest. For this particular location, we need investment in terms of the grid. That investment needs to be made uh, by the ESB, and we still believe that also needs to be funded also by the government if it's going to get the access points, and it needs to be the right access points. There's absolutely no point, and we've been saying this to the government, in terms of making electricity available at the wrong locations. You have to have it work, you know, where consumers are happy to come and charge their vehicles. So to answer your question, the reason why we don't have it here is we would love to have it here, but we can't until we get sufficient capacity in the grid. That's going to mean having a substation here, and to put a substation here takes planning, and it's going to take time. And when that is available, it would be our intention to actually have EV chargers here. We're actually doing a trial in Northern Ireland where we have sufficient capacity at a certain location where there was a substation, and we're trialing different manufacturers of rapid chargers. These are 80 kilowatts, 175 kilowatt chargers, because it's about the speed of charge, because consumers will not want to sit on a forecourt for any longer than 20, 25 minutes. That's subject to you having the right offer in store, because dwell time will go up, and it's about making sure you have the right environment where people are happy to spend their time. So 
really what we're looking at at the moment is tooling up where we believe EV hubs need to be positioned within our network because we have to make them available at the right location and we have to make them available at the right time. If you go too early, Kieran, you could be buying the wrong technology. It could be out of date and it may not provide the level of service that we want to provide to our customers. And I think one of the critical things, Noel talked about the time we went to Norway. All of our board of directors, along with the senior management team, went on a study tour over three years ago to look at Norway, which is one of the leaders in terms of electrification. Uh, obviously, with their hydropower and very cheap electricity, that's why they're seen as the outlier in terms of leading the charge in terms of, of EVs. And to be quite honest with you, we've been learning from them. Uh, we actually liaise very closely with an international group of EV associations right across the world. And one of the lessons that we're picking up is if you go too early, you can have the wrong equipment. The equipment may not provide the charge as quickly as customers would like. And the resilience on the equipment doesn't give you the reliability. And the last thing you want to do is make the investment at the wrong time with the wrong equipment. We're also testing payments platform. I don't know if you drive an EV car. We actually have an EV in our fleet. Noel's son, Barry, is, is driving a Tesla. And the reason you might say, my goodness, uh, a traditional oil company is, has actually got electric vehicles. Yes, we should have electric vehicles in our fleet because we need to understand how the vehicles operate and really what those vehicles need in which to be able to travel. And We've learned an awful lot even from that experience, just in terms of the time it takes to charge, what manufacturers tell you in terms of the number of kilometers you can travel in a charge. There's quite a big tolerance in sure. terms of what you're going to achieve. That depends on the weather, it depends how you drive the car, all of those factors outside of everyone's control. But one of the things that we have learned from this EV Global Association is you need to have a payments model that's simple to use. A lot of the models in Norway, you need different apps. So if you arrive up to a certain station and you don't have that app, you can't charge. So it needs to be interchangeable and it needs to be very simplistic. So we have developed our own payments platform at our own sort of EV charging hub. So what we're trying to do is to get it right first before we start rolling it out. And that's another reason why you're not seeing it here, Kieran. But it's not because we're behind the race on this, it's because we want to do it right. Brian, I'm sure you've crunched some numbers on this to roll out EV chargers, these fast chargers that you're talking about across your network, how much is it going to cost? What kind of investment is Maxall looking at over the next decade? If I can just take it on this particular site, just to make it easy for people who are listening to this, um, for at the moment, ESB would charge us for building the substation, for the planning permission, and for getting the cable to this particular location. That could be as much as 250, 300,000 euros for one location. Then we've got to put the equipment in on top of that. If you're going for fast, rapid chargers, which we would be, if you're going for a 150 or a 175 kilowatt, each of those could be as much as 75,000, 100,000. And if you're going to put a bank of them in, we wouldn't be looking at putting anything in less than four, which could charge eight EVs at any one time if you've got the capacity in the grid to service that. That's equivalent to about 12 houses using energy at the one time. So that's, when you start to multiply that up, you can see the requirement for significant investment in power generation in the grid. 
But just to go back to your question, say it's 300,000 just to get the cabling here, then you'll be looking at least another 450,000 on top of it. So it's at least three quarters of a million per location. And what we would be looking at within our initial exercise within our network, we own 120 freehold assets right across Ireland, but you need space, you need access to the grid to get it there. So you can do the calculation there. It's, it's a lot of money to make that investment. That's why you've got to make sure you make the investment at the right time. At the moment, Karen, there's only 40,000 EVs in the Republic of Ireland. In Northern Ireland, there's less than 5,000. So there's quite some way to go before you start getting to the business case to support significant investment. That's why it's making sure you do your homework first, you do your research. If you jump too early, you're not going to get it right and you're going to disappoint customers and that's not what we want to do. Brian, just doing some quick mental arithmetic, just in terms of your own company-owned stores, you're probably looking at about 100 million, guts off? Certainly over, over a long period of time. Yeah, like you certainly wouldn't just roll that out immediately. But certainly when we're looking at our budgets and we're really thinking we need to be well tilled up and starting to roll out our EV hubs from about late 23 up to 25, that's when we're starting to roll it out. And I think in our capital budgets, Noel, we probably will be thinking of allocating anything between 5 and 10 million per annum to, to make sure we've got the infrastructure. But as I said before, Kieran, there are many stakeholders here to make this happen. We need... ESB and the other sort of network providers to make sure they have the cabling, make sure they've got the power generation to meet the future capacity and demand. Uh, and at this moment in time, it's not there. No, it doesn't exist. Okay, um, the wind is getting up ever so slightly, so maybe we should go indoors and continue our conversation in there. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll have moved indoors to continue our conversation about Maxwell's future investment plans. With increasing pressures, Ireland's CEOs are working hard to navigate the rapidly evolving business landscape. The EY Ireland CEO Outlook Report takes a deeper dive into the topics that are on the minds of Irish CEOs at the moment, and importantly, the issues that leaders should be paying attention to. Discover the key actions to consider as you seek to reshape the future of your organisation at ey.com slash ie slash CEO. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. This week, I am talking to Maxall CEO Brian Donaldson and his family director, Noel McMullen. For this part of the programme, we took a seat in the cafe inside, grabbed the coffee, and I asked Noel about how rare it was for a business like Maxall to remain in family ownership for so many years. There are a few others that I, I know of, like Weir's is 150 and it's still owned by the family. Um, uh, Musgraves is another one. Um, Oh, the people who make porridge, I think they're still family-owned. What, what are they called? Flavin. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Flavin, yeah. Um, so we're not, we're not alone, but, you know, we've been competing with amongst the biggest companies in the world for 100 years, and incidentally, they're all gone now. Where are Shell gone? Where are BP gone? Where are Continental gone? Where are Esso gone? Where are Texaco? You'll still see the signs up, but they don't own that. Irish division anymore. They're all gone. So we're, we're the only company still in existence after 100 years in this market. All the ones you see now, like Circle K you mentioned earlier, um, they've only been here for 10 years, I guess. Uh, Brian, talking about Circle K, um, they've announced recently that they're going to go on the high street with their with standalone convenience stores. They're buying some 
um, shops that are currently operating under the Londis brand. Is that something that Maxwell's going to look at? Look, I think firstly, Kieran, like, I think it's a good move by Circle K. They're obviously going to test their model, which, which really is a four-core convenience model, which is quite different to our own. You know, their range of products would be a lot tighter. You have a, limited, you have a more limited choice in, in, in a Circle type offer than, than what you have within a Maxwell store. So I suppose what they're doing is going to test the high street. And, and I suppose no better way of doing it than, than taking 10 stores. And I suppose looking to the future, and everyone has to look to the future because we know that liquid fuels are going to decline at some point. Uh, so look, I think it's an interesting move by them. For us, I would see our stores already being much more community-based stores than what you would have within a Circle K network and indeed some of the other players. You know, here we are in Bray, like we've been here for, for many decades and we intend to be here for many more decades. Uh, and because we have 120 sites in Ireland, the majority of our sites are all in the suburbs, are all in the neighborhood. So whenever we're buying sites, and in the last 10 years, I think we've bought something like 30 odd freehold properties in Ireland. Whenever we're doing that analysis, we look at the hinterland we look at how many houses are around there, what's the social demographics, where are the road changes likely to happen, where are the schools, where are the business parks. We don't like large transient locations because you're very much vulnerable to the economy and you're also very much vulnerable in terms of the movement of traffic. And we would see our business model being much more community-based, much more community-driven than some mm. of our core competitors in the market. But going back to your question, would we look at, at standalone sites without fuel? Yes, we would. Uh, we would particularly in towns and villages. I'm not sure I would go looking for them in Dublin city centre. That may not just fit our model. Uh, but we are particularly good at serving local communities where we can build relationships. You know, we're very trusted because, as Noel has said, we've been here for 101 years. We're probably better known as a retailer of fuel and more so in the last 10 years as being much more convenience driven. You know, we launched our coffee brand, which you're enjoying here in, in, in Bray Rosa Coffee. That has been a phenomenal success for us. But our model again is working with Bewley's, a local roaster of beans. All of our packaging here is compostable because it's very important for us before we launched, we did it right. It's more expensive in terms of the packaging, but it's the right thing to do. And our consumers like it. So yeah, look, we'd be very happy to buy sites if we think there's a strong, viable business without fuel. It's something we would certainly consider. No, can I just ask you from a family-owned uh, point of view, you've remained independent for 100 years, you remained uh, family-owned. Do you think in 100 years' time that Maxall might continue to be owned by the McMullen family? Because I'm sure you've had many offers uh, to, to take over the business over the years. I wouldn't say many. We've had, we've had a few approaches, but not, not in recent times. I think people know we're a family business. I mean, lots of the other oil companies have been bought and are now part of Circle K or whatever it might be. But they know we're a family business, that we're all family controlled. And so we probably don't get that many. It's a long time since we've had any uh, interest. But apart from that, um, certainly on my side, my father said in his uh, will, if you like, that as best as possible he would like the company to stay as a family business. 
Um, and that's certainly been the intention of my side of the family. I can't speak for the other side, um, but I'm sure it's the same for them. A few quick questions for you, Brian. Your best seller in store? Best seller in store is coffee. Coffee, okay. Um, budget coming up, there's a carbon tax, fuel prices are going to rise. How do you feel about that? We would prefer they weren't going to rise because it's just pushing more inflation and it's going to put more pressure on household incomes at a time when families can least afford it. So, again, this is trying to get the balance in terms of the climate action plan and what's going to be affordable going forward. Um, so I think the government needs to, to take a bit of a recheck. You're in a joint venture which is supplying electricity to consumers. You're planning to launch gas, when will that be? To be honest, at this moment in time, we've pushed our plans back on gas. You know, you probably very well uh, aware in terms of gas prices rising by 250% in the last eight months, 70% alone in the month of August. So look, we would be looking at launching gas at some, at some stage in 22, but not before that. Okay. And in terms of uh, the switch to EV or hydrogen or whatever it might be, how long more uh, will you be selling liquid fuels, do you think? When do you think the Dale Comey will stop selling petrol and diesel? I think it's a great question, Kieran. If I knew that, I'd probably make a lot of money in, in advising all of the other oil companies around the world. But, but it, look, to be honest, our view is that the transition or the inflection point is when electric vehicles become more affordable and when there's an infrastructure to support those electric vehicles. Personally, I don't see that happening until you're getting well into the latter part of this decade. And as we said earlier, there's 2.8 million cars on the road at this moment in time. Even if they stop selling internal combustion engines from 2030, there's still a very strong business to well into the next decade. So, so our view is you've got to position yourself for the future. That's why you start laying down foundations now for how your business is going to evolve and change. And we have delivered our strategic plan up until the end of 21. We're now rewriting the strategic plan, which will take us right up to 2027. Big part of that is sustainability. How do we reduce our carbon footprint? How are we going to position and make sure the business is fit for purpose for the next 100 years, as Noel rightly says, in terms of a family-owned business? And I think one thing that we're not afraid of doing is we travel everywhere. I sit on the board of the International Board of NACs in the States, Noel and other family members. We will be going back to Norway to see firsthand how that has changed in the last three years. We're going where those markets are maybe a little bit ahead of Ireland, trying to get that insight, and we're going to bring it back, and we're going to make sure that we get our business fit for purpose. What do you drive? I drive, would you believe, a diesel Mercedes, because there's no infrastructure to charge it if I'm driving from from Belfast to Dublin. Right, Noel, what do you drive? I drive a BMW K1300S motorbike. I sold my last car in 2001. My wife has the family car, I have the family motorbike. So much easier commuting. I live in Delgany into the... And do you have the leathers and everything? Oh, the lot, yeah. If my wife hadn't been able to lend me the car today, I'd have been here on the motorbike. They've never seen me here in this filling station in a car, only on the bike. And finally, Noel, I mean, Brian is doing a fine job as a chief executive, but uh, someday he's going to go off and do something else or he's going to retire or whatever. Um, do you see McMullen running the business into the future? I think I don't really. I mean, we need somebody with international management experience. Uh, certainly into the foreseeable future, I see the family remaining as a family business. Um, but I, I can't think... My grandfather obviously ran it, 
His two of his sons, my father and Max's son, ran it for a while. But since then, we've had outside expertise. Tom Noonan came to us from what was then the FUE. And Brian came to us almost straight from university and has moved up through the family yes, of, of physicians in the business uh, to finish up as the chief executive. Uh, maybe in the next run, Mike find a way through that maze, but I don't think I would see a McMullen family member as chief executive, but who can tell? Who can tell? Okay. Norman McMullen, Brian Donaldson, thank you for joining Inside Business. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Karen. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Brian Donaldson and Noel McMullen. The show was produced by Declan Conlon with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.